Welcome to Jason and the Movie Nots. I'm Jason Sachs. I'm still Blaze Mara. <laughs> do I know what I'm talking about? Yes, <laughs> I do. I hope I do. We are talking about a couple more movies in our Paul Schrader watch series, Patty Hearst and The Comfort of Strangers. Uh, I wasn't expecting this to be a bit of a, a pair here, but I've got, we've got the, this is the Natasha Richardson double feature, but also both of these movies are not written by Schrader. So that's interesting. Mm-hmm. But both have a Schradery feel to them. It definitely brings yeah. a lot to the screen. They both do. And they're very different movies too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's start with Richardson. Like I think this, whenever you see like back-to-back movies and they're playing completely different characters, you have a minute to like really appreciate the quality of the acting. And like the natural Richardson, if I was like a woman in her, well, now I, I, if I was a woman who was born around when Richard Richardson was born, I can't talk. I'd be so fucking jealous of her. I'd be so angry <laughs> because like physically and physically as a part of comfort of strangers, she's spectacular. She's just a gorgeous woman and her mm-hmm. acting ability is just like amazing. I didn't even know that she was English when I watched Patty Hearst. Yeah. So how much did you know about the Patty Hearst story before you watched the movie? So uh, like very little. I think I must have, I think it may have been like in a textbook when I was a kid growing up, maybe. Um, I saw the photo of Patty Hearst in front of the the Symbionese Liberation Army logo. And I think I saw like a photo of her. No, it was that photo that I saw. Mm-hmm. And all I heard was that she was kidnapped by a group of far left terrorists and that always kind of, I still remember that now because I don't hear about domestic far left terrorists a lot. So I've, I'm just thinking like, what does that mean? What does that look like? And I still, having seen the movie, I still don't know that much about the real life story, but from watching the movie, um, yeah, that's totally what they were. <laughs> yeah, I, I was, okay, so this is me dating myself like I always do. I do have vague memories of the Patty Hearst kidnapping from when I was a kid. Hmm. I was a very young kid at the time to be, to, to be fair. But I remember like my parents and everyone else just like talking about Patty Hearst, like this, this poor woman got kidnapped and everything. And, and it was just a giant scandal. I remember them talking about the controversy when she seemed to get, um, when they took the photo of her um, in front of the flag, but also there's a photo of her, at the uh, bank robbery that she's part of. Yeah. And then I went back. um, So remember Jeff, Jeffrey Tubin, the CNN reporter who got, who basically got kicked off the air for masturbating on a zoom call. Oh, Uh, I I think maybe I heard about years ago, a couple years ago, anyway, like just before the pandemic, I think it was. Uh, So there was a commentator on CNN who was comment, always commented on legal issues. And, um, basically when he was off the air but somehow still connected they found he was masturbating to with some uh friends online i guess that's the uh that's the worst hot mic blunder i've ever heard of so tubin wrote a book about patty hurst um <laughs> before all this happened so i feel this weird like 
uh, I read this book and it was interesting. It was by this guy who's like a scum of the earth kind of guy. Although whatever, you know. Something uh something else like the you know the um when she gets arrested spoilers for real world events but when she gets arrested and her uh her defense is f lee bailey Uh and this is like this is 20 years before the oj simpson trial right and even the movie came out before the oj simpson trial so like I, i don't think america at large cared about patty hurst's defense attorney at the time that this movie came out he like got really famous later he was a TV celebrity though before that. Oh, okay. He, I don't he was know. On like the Johnny Carson show and stuff. Oh, okay. Never mind then. So he was a known guy. Hmm. Uh, so my whole reason about telling this weird, the kind of pointless tangent <laughs> was to say uh, I did some reading about Patty Hearst a few years ago because hmm. like I've been fascinated by her story. And um, so a couple things from what you said. One is that. There was a whole wave of domestic terrorism in the U.S. from left-wing groups in the early 1970s. Oh. Especially in the Bay Area. So they were bombing like the Berkeley campus and they were attacking at Stanford and they were bombing in San Francisco, um, L.A. also. So it was like a big thing in the country. And there were, I want to remember, there were like hundreds of arrests over the first half of the 1970s from these weird groups called, like the Sibionese Liberation Army. Which is so hard to say. <laughs> but there's no such thing as a Symbionese. I was also like, I went down the rabbit hole one day, like, who are these people? And they're basically like a bunch of like left-wing radicals who just want something to be pissed off about. Mm. It, like they didn't actually have like, I don't know, if you're defending the Sikhs in, in Iraq or something, you you'd have someone to defend yourself against or for mm. or whatever but they never talk about who the poor symbionese are in this movie right <laughs> there's um in, in the movie it seems like uh like the sla are accelerationist so what their goal is is um like they you know this bunch of guys shacked up in guys and girls shacked up in uh in in the bay area are not going to overthrow the government but what they're going to do is they're going to uh, make their goal is to make the country more tumultuous, which pisses more people off, bringing more people to the far left cause, which eventually is going to get the government overthrown. So that's what accelerationist means. I just w- learned just that word like last year. Thinking so. Someone would actually believe shit like that. <laughs> And they're not portrayed as being very bright or uh, or um, wise in the movie. Like <laughs> uh, one of the guys in the group who gets more development than the rest because he's in more of the movie than the rest, uh, along with his main partner teammate, I guess, is uh, is Tico. And Tico has some pretty suspect lines throughout the movie like uh like when they're in san francisco he goes like god i just wish i was black uh-huh which uh-huh. made me laugh uh-huh and then later he's talking to the the only japanese american character in the movie wendy and you're j- i was just waiting for him to bring up 
the Japanese internment camps whenever he first had a, dis a verbal disagreement with Wendy. And sure enough, he's like, you grew up in a concentration camp. Now you want to go back to one? Uh-huh. And Wendy uh, shuts him down very quickly after that. So Tico has some very suspect lines. And like when the when the SLA are in their like San Francisco headquarters and they're like they're doing like um breach and clear practice, but it really looks like kids with cap guns. Uh-huh. They just look they're like they're playing. They're like giggling as they talk about shooting pigs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh so what was your reaction to the movie? I really liked it. I liked it more than I was expecting to because people don't talk about this one. Mm -hmm. um, as far as Schrader's own opinion of his movie, he says if he were to do this one again, he would do it as a TV miniseries so that he could add more character development to all the members of the SLA, yeah. uh, most of whom die in a shootout with the LAPD. Right, they move to LA and then they die in LA. Yeah, yeah, because they're um, kind of basically just directionless about what they're gonna do. Yeah, they're just d like doing bank robberies for the people. <laughs> I mean, the book I read is like four hundred pages. It's a classic kind of book that if we were or story, if you're gonna make it now, you'd make it like a ten-hour miniseries. Yeah, yeah, totally. Because there's stuff that's like a big deal that they just kind of briefly touch upon in the movie, like. Um, Patty Hearst's dad was um, uh, one of the inheritors inheritors of the Hearst fortune, not the rich, famous Hearst. He was a different one, which right. is just by itself really interesting, like how they landed on Patty and why she is the one they chose and why she was living in this apartment that was completely um, just like un not even like locked. And there's a backstory about how she ended up with that boyfriend and like, yeah. and then who she is just as a person. We don't get much of an idea who she is up front. But there's the thing that one... I not really spell out at all in the movie is, remember there's a one moment where they talk about, we want to feed all the poor people in California. Yeah. And they're like, well, we need, it's going to cost $7,000 per person or something to, to feed everybody. And it's like a, this was actually a big deal. Like they, the Hearst family did actually pay some millions of dollars to feed the poor people in, in the Bay Area of California at that time. And there were riots in the streets and the police were called out. And it was like this complete and total fiasco and <laughs> yeah. showed the SLA to be complete clowns. And it's just glossed over a little bit in the movie because it's not central to Patty's story. Right, right. Yeah, they skip over that. Yeah. And That's so interesting. As for like Patty's backstory, she narrates the movie in the typical Schrader way. Um, she kind of describes her own childhood as like, okay, I grew up rich, but like not that rich is basically what she says about <laughs> yeah. herself. She's the granddaughter of Citizen Kane's biggest hater, William Randolph Hearst. And um, so she grew up wealthy. She lives comfortably in Berkeley, but there's one shot in her apartment before she gets kidnapped where you see she has a couple of books, a couple of leftist books. She has a book called Rights in Conflict. I don't pretend to know what these books are, but I just Googled them after seeing them in the movie. One's called Rights in Conflict that was published in 1968. Another's called The Don Juan Papers, which is a critique of a guy named uh, 
Carlos, oh, Carlos Castaneda, who wrote a book that was a complete hoax talking about some like South American tribe that he supposedly visited, but he made it all up. Oh, interesting. Wow. And so, so it's like an ethnography and uh-huh. a false one at that. We've got stories like that in America. I can't think of the title, but there's some famous book about like some guy who grew up as a Native American, but he was actually white and made the whole thing up. I can't remember that guy's oh, name. Oh, yeah. There's yeah, a few yeah. books like that. Yeah. So she has a book called The Don Juan Papers, which is a criticism of that book. So she's got some like leftist literature in her house. So at the end of the movie, when her uh, when her defense is arguing that she was brainwashed and the prosecution is arguing that she was all on board, um, it's kind of ambiguous. Like there's a small case for for Patty Hearst uh, sympathizing with the SLA, at least a little bit. She was angled in that direction. Yeah. Yeah, I think she was. And. I think part of it is that she was possibly rebelling against her upbringing. Yeah. Right. And then that she's in Berkeley, which is like this, this place where the leftists all lived in the seventies. Hmm. It was like famous for being like the most leftist campus in the country. Hmm. And so like, she had to be like part of that world. And you also forget how much further to the left the U S was in the 1970s. I oh, mean, Nixon's, okay. Nixon was in some ways to the left of Biden, honestly. <laughs> I mean, he created the EPA, for example. Oh, wow. Biden doing something like that. Hmm. That's true. But, yeah, I mean, Nixon did wage and price controls. He uh, he kicked a guy off the Supreme Court because he was corrupt. Hmm. Uh, well, or pushed a guy from... Anyway, uh, yeah. Uh, so he was actually like pretty far left in the way we think of things now so i think she was but anyway to your point i think she was sympathetic but okay so here's the thing i thought about both from the book and from the movie is that i'm not sure she has any freaking idea who she is either hmm. i feel like and, and part of it maybe is because richardson takes this kind of valley girl kind of tone of voice with her where she she's... starts the she starts the movie at 19 years old yeah. so there's yeah, there's a certain amount that you can let slide, but that's it's true what you're saying. Uh, I think she just doesn't know who she is. And so she's thrown into this horrible situation and she's just like this, in some ways, just like this clay that they can turn into whatever they want to turn her into. And yeah, I mean, the brainwashing scenes are horrible. We should talk about that too. But like, I think there's so much there about like how easily, how easy it was to change her. I've always been fascinating with like how much of this is her committing to the SLA and how much of this is just her trying to survive and how much of this is her just like, I'm just going to kind of drift along in the way I need to drift along in order to get by in my life. Well, this is, um, this is kind of more in, on, in the thread that blue collar and light of day belong to where we've got a protagonist that's like just desperate to survive rather than a protagonist who's all up in their head yeah oh i like that a lot blaze and uh that's kind of so as for my i never quite answered your question what did i think of the movie the sorry yeah (laughs) off on all these other tangents that's my bad um but like that's what i was struck by the whole movie is about 
partly about the ambiguous question of whether Patty was truly converted by the SLA or not. And so like, like she has that awesome monologue at the end. Uh, I really like her final monologue where she yeah. says she was convicted because no one in the American public, no one on the jury is brave enough to like, is, is, uh, certain enough to accept that a person's brain can be altered and manipulated by outside forces. And this is what she's saying, like in a conversation with her dad. Mm -hmm. So you, you kind of think like, yeah, this isn't for a camera in this scene. Mm -hmm. So she's probably being more genuine than in other parts of the movie, but also it is in front of a camera because it's in a fictional movie and the movie is like partly about not Patty Hearst, but what people thought of Patty Hearst. And, and it's what Kazan and Schrader choose to put as a kind of her last words too. Yeah. Yeah. Like the final words of the movie are not really about Patty Hearst specifically. They're about like the way that the American public received the Patty Hearst case. Yeah. And I really like that approach to this story, which is why I really liked this movie. Um, I thought it was super cool how, again, we've got a movie that kind of changes styles because like uh, when she has the blindfold on, the movie is super impressionistic, kind of like mm -hmm. Mishima. You got these like crazy lights, these uh, illogical sets because like she's not seeing any of this. So this is what she's imagining in her head, right? And that could, that could go along with like, you know, trauma victims. A lot of the time speak of dissociation uh, in order to get through what they're going through. I liked that a large part of the movie is spent dealing with Patty Hearst's uh, torture. And it really is torture at mm -hmm. the hands of the SLA. She's repeatedly raped, for example, until she doesn't resist anymore. And she's been slop. Uh, she's locked in a closet. Yeah, yeah. Locked in a closet. She has a blindfold on for like, uh, what Seven is it like? Some, some, somewhere close to like two months. Yeah. And um, between six weeks and two months. Hmm. And of course, the SLA want to portray themselves as the good guys. And so one day when they go, when they open up the closet door, they're like, uh, unlike the fascist pigs, we don't keep our captives in solitary confinement. So come out and talk to us, guys. <laughs> Which they had just done. And then at the end of the movie, when she gets arrested by the police, the movie draws very clear parallels, implying that the way Patty feels about being arrested by the police is similar to the way that she feels about being kidnapped by the SLA, or at least that, you know, the experience of waking up in the morning, unaware that you're going to be, you know, put in shackles that day. And then it happening out of the blue is like triggering to her. Um, so that's kind of saying like the, the movie's very clearly not in love with the SLA. Well, no, because they're a bunch of clowns, right? Yes, yes. The other thing I was going to say too is like when when she's blindfolded, their voices seem louder, 
and they mm. seem to have a lot more authority. And when she finally takes off the mask and she sees them all for the first time and they're all kind of sitting in front of her and they're introducing themselves to her, they just feel a little bit smaller than life in a way once mm-hmm. that happens. Yeah. Once they're not no longer these kind of giant, you know, they once Big Rames is no longer eight feet tall, but yeah. six and a half feet tall, he's just somehow a little less terrifying. Not to mention they're they're part of their brainwashing tactic is to lie to her. Mm-hmm. So they're they're talking about like other SLA battalions across the country, which is a lie. And uh and finally when she has the blindfold off, they start talking about, you know, other SLA units. I think she says, like, suppose I get transferred to another SLA unit. And then Ving Rames, who said the lie originally, is like there are no other units. It's just us. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, and they, they even want to um, have the Black Muslims join them. At one point, they try try to recruit them, and the Black Muslims see completely through them. Like, yeah, these are just clowns. They, you could tell them they're thinking that. Mm-hmm. I love, uh, I loved Wendy. She, she, she's only in the movie for a little bit. Yeah. But her, the way that she, like, systematically brought tico down and down and down was really really funny to me she was kind of saying everything that i was thinking about tico who's played by william forsyth and like the way that she says uh the way that she said oh she calls tico a a guilty racist who wants a black god to save him Uh uh-huh i loved that (laughs) Yeah, and Tico uh, and that's is it. that's another thing they could. I, I would have loved to have them delve into if there was ever a TV show about her because yeah, these motivations are just just a little bit there on the surface. There's that married couple, can't remember their names. Is it the Brownings? Uh, or is it Cujo and anyway the the married couple? Cujo and his wife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cujo and his wife. That's right. Um, and they like feel like they're complete outsiders too. Like they have their own motivation. Everyone's got their own reasons for being there. And you wonder how this whole group just ends up being together in the first place. And when a lot of them die in the shootout with the LAPD, which Schrader watched live on TV when it happened, by the way, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, when a bunch of them die, including Ving Rames's character and several others, uh, at that point, Patty even says in her narration, um, the group was disorganized. All the meetings, uh, all the decisions in all the meetings were were motivated by personal hatreds, yada, yada. Um, there's like a new recruit that they pick up in LA who says like just before a bank robbery scene, she says like, I'm sorry, but I don't see what the cause has to do with bank robberies cut to a bank robbery uh-huh uh-huh that's the bank robbery where she chickens out that's where they get the video of her there's like a famous five second video of her holding the gun and twisting back and forth i've seen that one too yeah, yeah. the one and only event that was semi-successful in their criminal career mm. and so she's like she's nervous during the bank robberies clearly that could be you know i don't know if that necessarily says that she's just like pretending she could she could just be anxious but um there's also a scene where uh tico 
and Yolanda, that's Tico's partner, they're in trouble trying to rob like a a, a sports equipment Sporting store. Goods store, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and of all things, right? A place where they and, actually have guns. Yeah. And, and they're in trouble. They're getting beat up. And uh and Patty, who does not follow them into the store, who sits in the car, then like tries to get them out of it. And so she fires a gun into the air not towards the sporting goods workers she fires right. it you know wildly in the air just to scare them off so that's it's little things like that that made me think um that she's just trying to make it to the other side uh another thing like that is the shootout with the LAPD which she watches on TV um because she's in a hotel room with Tico and Yolanda separate right. from it. She's like, when she's watching it on TV, knowing that uh, some of their comrades are in there, she's horrified. And when you first see that look on her face, I first thought she really likes them. She's Maybe she likes them. That's why she, you know, is so terrified by this. But actually... As that scene goes on, it kind of becomes clear that what she's actually scared of is being shot to death by the LAPD herself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I think I'm on the side of Patty Hearst uh, just trying to make it through. But she's also portrayed as not having the most uh, intact mental state too, which I appreciated. There are some scenes where Natasha Richardson is like, babbling in the closet like, yeah re really convincingly it was kind of hard to watch oh my god those scenes are extremely hard to watch because i mean you are really placed in this world where they, you're feeling the same experiences as the characters i'm sure Schreier talks about that in the commentary uh, where you know he intentionally puts us in a place where we're just as disoriented as hearst is and mm. so like we just feel this kind of profound unease as we're watching that so that when she finally is released, uh, like in a weird way, we're sympathetic towards the SLA. Like, I feel like we are kind of deliberately put in her shoes. Yeah. Like you, you're just even, much like, much like Patty Hearst her was. Viewpoint, right. Sorry. Yeah. M much like Patty Hearst was, you know, the movie chooses to put you in that space and you can't leave yeah. and you just, these are the people that you're spending the runtime of this movie with. So get used to it as Patty Hearst did. I really liked how this movie uh, uh, approached the subject. I mean, I've seen plenty of kidnapping films and movies before, right? Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen anything that really puts you that much in like this feeling of complete confusion, this complete dislocation. And even like the idea of her ever running away, like is completely out of her mind. She's just there to survive it. Yeah. And at the beginning, like she's just there in her nightgown and uh, nothing else too. So she's, she's virtually stripped naked mm. um, in this experience too. She really has nothing at all. Um, no confidence in, in the ability to get away. And all she can do is survive. So mm -hmm. to what you were saying earlier, like, like it, it, really does make sense for her to just make a decision even or maybe it wasn't even a decision just just to go roll with the punches so to speak it just go with um what she's forced to do because otherwise she has nothing no ability mm. to, to move beyond it and mm. she records those recordings to her parents too which are 
like heartbreaking mom dad i'm okay and mm-hmm. her voice is so thin and so pathetic in those recordings mm-hmm. there are other recordings like made for news outlets where she's obviously being coached too um yeah the the prosecution when she gets arrested makes a strong case you know to that jury the prosecution's like you expect us to believe patty hurst expects us to believe that that she didn't mean it when she made those recordings she didn't mean it when she showed up to this courthouse uh flashing a smile at the cameras or when she answered a uh, urban gorilla for her occupation right it was and then suddenly changed her tune after she spent her first night in jail and the, so the prosecution makes a strong case which convinces that jury but like and maybe you as an audience member would be tempted to think that she's also pretending during the court scenes where she's trying to get out of it but it's because the first third of the movie is spent so strongly emphasizing the the horror of her torture mm-hmm. that you just can't forget it and you even during the court scene at the and during her final monologue at the very end you're you can't stop thinking about the torture at the beginning of the movie and i think it's i think it's because schrader chose to do that part you know in this like impressionistic style just emphasizing how she is seeing things in her mind which i think was the correct move it was really smart just yeah perfectly approached this subject that's my main thought about patty hearst the movie perfect approach to the subject because we came out of it i came out with as many questions as i I had going in Mm. and that's actually something i was hoping to have like i didn't want to be kind of dictated how to feel about it i mean i did certainly came through it feeling the torture scenes were painful and awful and traumatic made me appreciate like why she made the decisions she had to make also made me feel like the sla were just a bunch of pathetic losers Mm. Um, i wish we had had some i wish they'd done something to place them in the larger context though like yeah talking about earlier because Mm -hmm. uh, they do just come across as these weird kooks like why did they land on this symbionese thing you know yeah where the hell did they come from that's never really gotten into at all yeah so i feel like that's uh that's a bit of a hole in the movie sure yeah but on the other hand like if this is the story of patty and not them Mm -hmm. imagine if you have a group of pick some random uh, january 6th conspiracy group come to you just kidnap you Mm. and never explain to you who they are but just kind of say we're the uh we're the i don't know the sixers just for want of a better term right and, and you're just lost you have no idea what's going on like you wouldn't know there's a bigger movement that you're part of or yeah and they actually weren't part of a bigger movement the sla they were just this these bunch of crazy people who are kind of vaguely affiliated with some leftist approaches to the world yeah like symbionese is not a word uh their logo is the naga i believe it's called which is a thing in hinduism but like who knows where they got that from that's appropriation yeah you know much much in in the same way 
I don't mean like I was offended by it, but like they have no connection to India, you know, or, or anything like that. Like they just saw this symbol in a book and they liked the meaning of it. And they thought like, hey, that's our logo, you know, much like far right groups will, will be like, I like Nordic runes. These are our thing now. I just realized Symbionese isn't even a, I thought it was just a, a nationality or something. I have no clue. It's a body of dissimilar bodies and organisms living in deep and loving harmony and partnership. In the oh. best interests of all. Oh, so it is a word. It's like an incredibly ironic word. <laughs> <laughs> huh. Dissimilar bodies living in deep and loving harmony and partnership. In the best interests of all inside the body. Hmm. Wow. So it's kind of made me tie it a bit to 1970s self-help too yeah so they think of themselves wow oh i also uh the horror of her torture scenes got me to pay attention to what um she was saying in the narration and some of the lines of her narration struck me too like uh i wrote one down don't examine your feelings they never help you and that's like that's something if I heard that from a stranger, you know, if I got into a conversation with a stranger at the grocery store and they said that to me, I would be very confused. But, <laughs> but for a torture victim to say that, I start to understand what they mean. And it kind of says a lot about the, the depths of their desperation. And depression. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, good movie. Yeah, it was a good movie. Good ass movie. Uh Nicholas, you're talking a lot about Nicholas Kazan's script. It is a fantastic script. Um, it's his third script, I guess. He he uh wrote for order for a film called Francis in 1982 that was, I think, nominated for an Academy Award for Jessica Lang hmm. about a troubled 1930s actress. And then he wrote a neo-noir crime drama called At Close Range with Sean Penn that came out hmm. in 86. So this is his third movie. And then 1990, he I think he was nominated for an Academy Award for Reversal of Fortune. Hmm. I just know him as the son of Elia Kazan, famous filmmaker, yeah. famous snitch. <laughs> he, he apparently had a good career for himself. He also wrote the 96 kids movie Matilda. Oh, <laughs> I know that one. I, I saw that and I was like, oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Not what I expected. Wow. That is a bit of a shift. One of my favorite kids movies, by the way. She's a very <laughs> special girl. <laughs> Actually, when they send Matilda to that, uh, to, to her school and that nasty, vicious, awful woman is there who, ser who serves her the cake. Oh my God. She might be a, an SLA member. You're, you're onto something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I don't why don't people talk about patty hearst i don't know what what makes people not dig it so much i'm trying to think about that now so i i i was wondering about that too and i think it's because there's no real conclusion to the story okay yeah like there's a the character herself is like this void we just don't know yeah about her yeah, I think I think you got it. This came out in that in that book I read about her, which is like 
I don't think she even knew who she was really on a profound level. She was just kind of this spoiled kind of mediocre rich kid. Hmm. Um, she was like the middle child of the middle family of the semi wealthy group among the, the hearsts. Hmm. You know, that, that side of the family did okay, but they're not the rich side of the family. Hmm. And then she seems like she drifted into going to college and drifted into having her boyfriend, Steve, who she eventually married and then divorced. And it just feels like she's just a woman who just drifted a lot in her life. Hmm. And then she never became prominent afterwards either. <laughs> Other than appearing in some John Waters movies. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> is that crazy? I hope she's doing well. I, I hope so too. <laughs> I hope so too. She probably had a fine, fine enough career, right? She's happy enough. Yeah, I'm just fascinated by like the the void at the center of that movie is just so interesting to me. Hmm. Yeah the the SLA ripped away her the future she had ahead of her to to figure out life as a mediocre rich kid. Uh huh. Uh huh. Her mediocre future, <laughs> mediocre rich kid, as a, as opposed to being tortured and gone, going through hell. Okay, I guess when I put it that way, <laughs> being uh, turned into a spectacle. Yeah, Comfort of Strangers is a completely different movie. Completely different. It's uh, it's so slow and quiet. I clocked right away. Well, I guess I. I could have just paid attention. Okay, so I must have seen the opening credits and then forgot and then had the thought during the movie, like this is totally based on a novel. Uh-huh. Because all of the action is driven by dialogue. Almost nothing happens for a solid hour. Like for the first hour of the movie, you get this couple, they're in Venice. Uh, they have some minor disagreements, which... Uh, paint a picture of maybe some kind of like unresolved tensions or like a downswing in their relationship and then they meet Christopher Walken and he tells them a very long story about his childhood that's like the first hour of the movie not just they don't just meet Christopher Walken they meet a very weird Christopher Walken which is to say a very normal Christopher Walken (laughs) Christopher Walken (laughs) with an Italian accent sort of with an Italian accent (laughs) Only sort of, and his wife, who's Helen Mirren, and she's mm. underplayed in the movie. Yeah, and then the last hour is just like this weird psychodrama. Yes, yeah, the, yeah. The, you know, the remaining forty minutes of the movie after that is these two somehow being like unable to escape from Christopher Walken and Helen Mirren, and they keep kind of finding themselves themselves like at their dinner table. And it gets weirder and weirder, and then it gets really weird, and the movie ends in a Paul Schrader kind of way. The movie ends completely differently from how it started. Yes. So I'm struggling with how I feel about this movie. I liked it. Uh, I like a movie that is incredibly unsettling. Yeah. You have no fucking idea what's going to happen. I thought like I don't know, I you know, this movie has a twist at the end, but I'm prepared for some I'm prepared for dark stuff watching Paul Schrader movies and also 
uh, a couple who goes to Venice to work out their relationship issues. Uh, these people should have watched Don't Look Now before making the decision to go to Venice. <laughs> you know, I did a episode on Don't Look Now, by the way. I love, mm. I'm a big fan of that movie. I'm not sure I can say I love that movie. I'm a big fan of that movie. Um, Venice is photographed really beautifully in both movies, I think. Uh, why does Venice feel so empty in this movie, though? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it must have been the off season. Well, I, I was thinking about this, like, it, it, so it feels so empty, right? It feels like there's no one really on the streets a lot of the time. It really does. Maybe some shopkeepers, but like even the restaurants, there may be a third full. And then I started thinking, well, okay, so symbolically, what does this mean? Does this mean they're in their own little world? Does this mean Colin and Mary are just like floating and them only seeing, only have eyes for each other? Or that uh, the walking character Robert is like in some way like manipulating them so they're only seeing what he wants them to see. Mm. And so it's like symbolically this way because Venice also feels a little run down, I guess. Mm. Not, not quite as much as it does and Don't Look Now. But Venice does feel a little run down, right? And they're like, well, is that also a reflection in how they're feeling about each other and their relationship and um, yeah. the struggles they're going through? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like everything you're saying. Um, I think what is that right? The Schrader's yeah. all is very much about you know the mise en scène matching the inner lives of its characters. I think what it means is that uh, Paul Schrader really likes the conformist, <laughs> <laughs> which is a fact. And... I don't know. Speak of talking about Hydras, by the way, I don't know how many movies kind of morphed out of people's love for the the conformist. I mean, oh yeah got to be one of the most influential movies ever mm. i was feeling it um while i was watching the comfort of strangers just these kind of well i just compared it to the conformist but i'm gonna say ozu like uh roger ebert called them pillow shots mm -hmm. these shots of just like pieces of furniture or tapestries or rugs or boats in venice that just kind of like a like a you know fluffy transition to the next scene there are lots of those in the comfort of strangers um it's much more quiet and slow paced than patty hurst much 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 more um but i'm trying to think much emotional turmoil right under the surface yeah you're right yeah I, i'm trying to think if just like aesthetically if this is schrader's quietest movie so far i think so next one up i think is light of day and that has like arguments with people screaming at each other you know so <laughs> yeah like this is uh well he went to europe to make this movie this is like a euro production nothing to, at all to do with hollywood uh besides christopher walken oh yeah but... this is by far his quietest movie so far yeah uh, this is our seventh or eighth now right mm -hmm. we're the seventh and eighth and this is by far the quietest yeah so so this is paul schrader during a doing a euro production i think he does really well at it um yeah i, I love how venice looks in this movie the the movie is very concerned with um because of christopher walken's character this is getting into the meat of the movie. Christopher Walken is a misogynist who was raised by misogynists. And so he's very concerned with tradition. 
And somebody who's very concerned with tradition would love Venice. I mean, it's one of the, you know, like, isn't it like one of the longest continually inhabited major cities in the world? Something like that. Yeah, something it like was, that. It was a city state for almost a thousand years. Um, it's, it's very unique. It's got beautiful architecture. So, of course, kind of like I was talking about in the Mishima episode, kind of yeah. traditionally minded conservative people are, they love old styles of architecture and stuff like that. Well, I've read criticism where the character is called a fascist. The walk-in character? The walk-in character is called a yeah. fascist. Yeah, he is. He is. There's that one conversation and this is the late 80s. There's this one conversation at a dinner table where um, Christopher Walken is talking about, uh, I don't know where Italy was in the late 80s. He's making it sound like it's not where Italy is today, just saying. But uh, Christopher Walken says, like, I like what's going on in England. I think Italy could stand to learn from England. Mm -hmm. And I believe this is the Margaret Thatcher era. Late over Thatcher. in Britain, right? Late Thatcher when everything curdled and got nastier and nastier. Yes. Yeah. And then Colin, who ha is uh, Rupert Everett's character, who is building up his distaste for Robert at this point, is getting uh, progressively less polite. Because at this, at this point, Robert has punched him full force in the gut, right. by the way. <laughs> so... Building yeah, a distaste also comes out of the blue. Yes, <laughs> building a distaste for Robert, to say the least. And when Robert starts talking about how, like, oh, Margaret Thatcher, you know, over in England has the right idea, he goes like, "I violently disagree with what you just said." Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's shit, is what he says. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. Uh. As for why Robert punched him, it's because of a minuscule, teeny tiny remark that Colin made um, talking about like, wow, uh, you really love your father, don't you? And I guess, right. which is true, that's it's all that Robert ever talks about. Yes. And whenever people ask Robert about his himself or his past all he ever has all he ever has to say is the same story about him and his sisters who locked him in his father's study and just the same story my father he wore a a mustache a black mustache i've forgotten how to do the christopher walken voice coupled <laughs> with the italian accent oh god i can't do Which it he kept dyed black with women's mascara <laughs> Or mascara it's, like the women use. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's all he ever talks about. And so at one point, Colin makes this remark like, you must really like your dad. All and, right. And Robert uh, detects just a little bit of sass, like a little bit of sarcasm in Colin's voice. And so he deals with it like a man. That's how he thinks he's thinking of it in his mind. I'm going to deal with this minor slight insult like a man by punching him in the in the gut and winding him <laughs> like his dad probably did to him oh yeah yeah i hadn't even thought about that 
but he's yeah, he's he's obsessed with he's obsessed with manliness, being well, he, a man. He also can't get over his past. The past yeah. is like this living thing to him. He's obsessed with it in a way mm-hmm. that like a person of his age must be 35 at least. Should mm. never be. A, of course, his house is also completely covered in artwork and it, everything in, in the house is um, classic style, right? All looks like it's Renaissance based, right? One mm-hmm. point, um, Colin sits down in the chair and it's a Louis Fourteenth chair. And it's like, here's this man is completely surrounded by antiquities and not just antiquities, but like Louis XIV's is, wasn't he the, the, the uh king when the french revolution happened i don't know i should not, get better but anyway about that. you know all, all throwbacks to a previous life right he's got yeah. renaissance paintings up everywhere yeah 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 i forgot their house is full of paintings yeah that's another like i was saying in the mishima episode mishima the guy was obsessed with you know old-fashioned styles of art and architecture and literature and Robert is very much like that, obsessed with manliness, what it means to be a man. You know, thinking back to the good old days when men were men and women were women and they knew their place. That's a big thing for Robert. Women should know their place. He's almost a lonely man. He's not quite in the same way that Mishima isn't quite a lonely man. Mm. He's a man who feels like he he's outside of time. Yeah. Which, which then this is weird because like, Ordinarily, I'd be like, why, why is why is this eccentric performance in the middle of everything else? <laughs> it's a very eccentric performance, right? And we're all walking, we're used to it. But it's a weird-ass performance. And it doesn't really make sense unless you just accept it for what it is. But if you accept it as this man, this creature of his past that has effectively no, no feeling of empowerment in his life, uh feel like an outsider then uh i think it makes a lot of sense yeah i think the reason that he's not the protagonist of the movie is because he's not nuanced enough he doesn't have enough of an edge compared to people that he's similar to like mishima or like jake van dorn from hardcore yeah but both of those guys have edges to them that make them more complicated than robert is Robert is very simple and very clear in he what is, he's about. He's extremely simple, right? Yeah, yeah. And whatever happens to him gets moved, this get put into this very specific like filter. You know, he sees every through everything through these these experiences. And like Mishima, like he he tries to fix it, put him into a narrative that's already created in his mind mm-hmm. that may not have anything to do with that actual reality. Mm-hmm. So he's this weird character where like. He should be fascinating, but because there's so little there, he's just kind of frustrating. <laughs> he's annoying as hell. But of course, like, yeah, to be fair, like, I feel like Colin and Mary are also pretty uninteresting. <laughs> I they're the beautiful uh, Brits, you know, uh, I like to, to them, maybe to to marry a bit, you know, when when she talks about her motherhood and how she feels like Colin doesn't respect her with her kids. And she seems to be the one character who's got some sort of light to her. Hmm. Um, and then, you know, she responds, uh, she's very into the, the sex life, which is kind of exciting in a way from a Schrader mm-hmm. movie to have someone who's, uh, well, both of them really, they're both so sexually empowered with each other. 
which felt like an interesting revelation compared to a lot of his films. I have a point about that, which is that they don't, uh, I mean, you know, presumably in, I believe it's the 10 years that they've been together. I feel like I want to say they said that at some point, it's been 10 years. Okay. But, oh, because that's when they last went to Venice was 10 years ago. And so I thought it was like four years ago, they were saying, but anyway, anyway, so they've been, you know, presumably at the beginning of their relationship, they had their honeymoon period and it happens like they get really uh, sexually wacky in the movie, but it's only after the scene where they go to Robert's and Mary's house for the first time and Mary uh, very intentionally, she totally knows what she's doing she like basically pranks them locks their clothes in the in the bathroom and then says like i looked at you while you two were sleeping and then uh when she's alone with mary um she's talking about uh oh, colin is such a beautiful man and rupert everett is actually more objectified in the movie than natasha richardson is yeah if you think yeah. about it and uh which i appreciated from schrader I kind of like the contrarianism of that. Um, But uh, it's only after that conversation, which is super weird, that gets Colin and Mary um, uh, to to look at each other with the, the Gaga eyes again. And then after that, they have what feels like a couple of days of just in the hotel room. Yeah, never to leave make a long room. story short. No, it is a couple of days because they show two different sets of room service sitting outside their door and towels. Oh, <laughs> yeah, so they they get like, I don't know, they uh they they make like rabbits after that first visit to Robert's house. They get the fire in their eyes again, and the, I I really was interested in their relationship in this movie. Uh, it was I thought it was pretty cool to see a movie about not a husband and a wife but two like 30 somethings who are dating and have been dating for 10 years which is like why aren't they married yet is a is a question that you might have um but it becomes clear in the movie why they're not married because they're still uncertain about each other and she has kids from a previous relationship and he doesn't like kids uh it's kind of hinted at which is a source of tension they've got these sources of tension in their relationship i thought their relationship was really like nuanced and interesting which makes sense for a movie based on a novel i'm sure the novel goes way into that um yeah it makes me want to read the novel because i'm sure there's a lot of interior monologue about exactly that you know when Helen Mirren uh, drugged us, took our clothes away and locked us in that room, uh, I discovered how much I just love Colin's body or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, totally. Uh, uh, and they are beautiful people from that standpoint, right? I mean, oh, yeah. <laughs> there's not a lot of body fat on either of them. No. <laughs> uh, and they, they accentuate that in the clothes they're wearing, although Colin's awfully stiff, but... Uh, Mary just feels like she feels like she's liberated being in Venice in the first place. Mm. I feel like she gets there over the course of the movie, especially um, after 
their couple of days where they never leave the hotel room. The next thing they do after that is they go to the beach, they go swimming and, uh, and before that there's a scene, I think it may be the scene. Okay. Rewinding a bit. The first time they meet Robert is where they go to this restaurant, which they don't know Robert owns. That's not said, but yeah. it's where Robert gives them the spiel, his story about his father with the black mustache. Right. They follow him in the middle of the night. They, they like were they, jet lagged or something. And so they follow, they him go the on a, the they, the they're only... like, they're, they're yeah. really hungry late at night and they get lost in this very empty looking Venice. Like you were saying, that's where it's strongest is when they're lost at night looking through alleyways and not even alleyways they walk into like courtyards that are completely empty as well and that's when they bump into robert for the first time after they go to robert's restaurant which who, has who, no food who had been spying on them on them yes. by the way yes i forgot about that and i'll have but something keep, to say about yeah, that yeah keep going with that i just want to make sure to put that bookmark there yes robert is stalking them the audience knows that but they don't and so they go to robert's restaurant which has no food they leave they have met this now they're still hungry and it's even later and they have this weird encounter to think about and they just end up she ends up throwing up for some reason and they sleep in an alleyway near one of the canals so you have to imagine when she wakes when she especially wakes up the next day she feels like hell just mm -hmm. unwashed vomit in her mouth and blah 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 she must feel terrible and they, i think it's they go to a cafe and she's like very despondent at this point she's like why did we go to venice can we just go home we should have brought the kids it would have been nice to bring the kids but you don't even like kids let's just go home she's in her head in this scene um i think it's during that scene that they talk about marriage or maybe it was before that. But at some point they talk about marriage. Mary. It's either wants... the second time they go to the other hotel and then walk and finds them at the or not the hotel cafe. Yeah. He finds them at that cafe. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. It's the same day, isn't it? Because they're going to drink water. He's like, uh, Colin's like, water will help you. Drink a lot of water. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Walken comes up and kind of grabs them at the cafe. Yeah, and they're kind of like hiding from him. Yeah, yeah. Away from him. <laughs> they do. They they giggle over it because it makes them think that they're like school kids again. Like, oh, it's him. Don't look. Uh huh. Uh huh. <laughs> totally like that. But at some point, they talked about marriage. Mary wants to get married, and Colin doesn't. And then they have their second wind in the hotel room where they're excited about each other again, you know, all new all over again. And, and then they go to the beach and she goes swimming by herself for a few minutes. And then they're walking along the river, the, the, the waterfront. And now suddenly Colin is talking about marriage. He's talking about like, you know what? I, was thinking about what you were talking about the other day, and I think you're right. I think we should do it. And then Mary is like, oh, what she says is, we don't have to think about that. 
it's such a nice day out, which is like, <laughs> says a lot more uh, between the lines than what she literally said. Yeah. Like, all of a sudden, she doesn't want to get married. Uh -huh. And she says, when I was swimming all alone out there, I felt so peaceful, which is kind of a crazy thing to say to your boyfriend of 10 years, but she seems very sure of herself in that moment. She's had that. Well, and it's interesting because he had actually like stayed with her all night and supported her and mm -hmm. kept her under his arm. But at the same time, she's rejecting him after that. You know, it's, it's also so that this bothers Colin as it would. I would be bothered too. And um yeah, and bothered. it's 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 important to note that that happens after their few days where they get very um sexually out there with each other after Robert and Caroline, you know, kind of inspire the thought in them, which is totally completely intentional on Robert and Caroline's part. It's a whole conspiracy. And uh and Robert earlier in the movie had been talking about um, he, he touches on like women's lib type of things at several points in the movie, like a poster about mm -hmm. forced castration for rapists. Mary, right. Mary likes the posters. Colin's indifferent. Robert dislikes them. And he says like, oh, they're just women who don't know what they want. Which is a terrible thing to say. And uh, there's something else he says, like he, he, he talks in a way that's like women should know their place, basically. And so after Colin and Mary get uh, really sexually adventurous for a few days, after that, Mary is suddenly feeling a lot more independent. This has to be swimming around in Colin's mind. It's almost as if Robert was right. Or the, the, the reason Robert thinks that way, which is, uh, is because when women feel more comfortable in their own skin, like they're allowed to be 100% themselves, they get a lot more independent, which is a true fact. Mm -hmm. And it's a mm -hmm. fact that Robert doesn't like because Robert is a misogynist. Right. And, well, and that brings me to maybe the last thing I wanted to really bring up, which is Helen Mirren's character, Caroline. Yeah. Feels yeah, a we, little, un, little like under his thumb, right? We and, have to talk about Caroline. Yeah. And it's disappointing because it's Helen fucking Mirren. Mm -hmm. um, but the character just feels like Ah, she's dominated by uh, Robert. That she just doesn't. She feels like she's just battling to have any sort of attention paid to her. Mm -hmm. uh, and what I got my impression is that she was someone who he had gone after to be his partner, or whatever, landed yeah. her, and then got bored with her. It was all about the pursuit. Yeah. And once he captured her, and I'm using the word intentionally, captured her. Mm -hmm. uh, he lost all interest in her, really. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and then she's got this desperately lonely life with this man who just has two things on his mind constantly. Uh, but she can't break away because she's terrified of breaking away. She just feels so emotionally abused by him. 
Yeah, it's it's made pretty literal in the movie. She she has a back injury, and I'll have plenty to say about her back injury. There's a lot there, um, but like she has a back injury and explains to Colin very briefly at one point, like I barely leave the house because of uh -huh. this back injury. So she really is like Robert's captive, which I don't know. I like it's hard to believe that Robert hurt her back intentionally with the mission of making her a homebody but like it works in robert's favor that she is and robert is the one who injured her back he he injured her back because robert kept pushing and pushing and pushing whenever they had sex he made it rougher and rougher and rougher um which like you know some women like being dominated but robert pushed it robert made it happen and when when caroline is explaining their sex life to mary which is like wild but anyway uh when she's talking right. about the way that robert does it um like she she explains it in a way that makes me think that she wanted mary to think that like she was so happy with their sex life because she gets exactly what she asks for. But the way that she actually explains it really makes it sound like, you know, she said no and Robert ignored her and Caroline accepted that she was not going to be able to change things and mm -hmm. there was no way to get Robert to stop. And so like sh she says that now she, she says that she uh, learned to love being dominated. Like she found out that she was into that. But what I really get from that is that she accepted the role that Robert put her in and uh, is now just sticking in that role out of desperation, just a need to survive. Just a need to survive because it's, well, she doesn't leave the house, so she doesn't even get to enjoy the lifestyle either. That's why she's captive. That's why, yeah. like, that's why all fucking human civilizations for the past 5,000 years or whatever have just been all about, like, your your woman is for your eyes only, uh -huh. stays in your house, she doesn't look at anyone, blah, 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 all that bullshit. That's the whole reason it's because men are scared of independent women and Robert is. <laughs> well, as a fascist, it makes sense for him to be afraid, terrified of independent women. Yeah. Because yeah. she's going to just promote her own independence and promote the independence of other women. Yeah. Yeah. Like what you were saying um, about like the pursuit, like you got the impression Robert chased her, because she's pretty and he wanted a trophy wife um and like like when you said that it made me think back to cat people something that i said about cat people which is a remake of a movie from the 1940s like movies in the 1940s and the way i put it back then was movies in the 1940s were about men who laid eyes on a pretty woman and they were like, she is mine now. Yeah. And 
that's exactly how Robert sees it. He sees Helen Mirren and he goes, she is mine now. Oh, yeah. Well, in the old movies, they'd also say, okay, let's get married after they've met each- known each other for two weeks. And yeah. since they were then their possession, which I guess they literally were. And if they ever talked, if Mary and Colin ever talked to Robert about how they've been dating for 10 years and they're not married, I bet Robert would have a lot to say about that. Mm-hmm. So do you have more you wanted to say about Caroline? Um, Because you were, you were kind of mentioning there were a couple things you wanted to dig into with her. She, okay, so like she, um, I haven't touched on the coolest thing that this movie does, which is the uh, like the stalker photographs. Yeah, there's this there's this scene that's like so chilling. Yeah, it it, it made my spine tingle in like a really good way that I loved. Where uh, where Colin and Mary are posing for a photo, they handed their camera to another tourist, and they're like, "Can you take a photo of us together?" And so, the photo is of like the camera is pointed at Colin and Mary dead on, of course, a portrait style. And then at the snap of the camera, you get this telephoto lens shot of the two of them from a completely different angle. Fucking wild. Isn't that cool? Oh my God. It's so spine tingling. It's great. And like the very first moment of the scene is this picture also of the, of the two of them. Yeah. immediately it's like what's going on here (laughs) that was so awesome what what what's the story here that was so cool and that is it it is explained and what it is is that what it is is that mary uh sees rupert everett and just thinks that he's such a specimen such a beautiful man and oh did i say mary i meant caroline Caroline lays eyes on Rupert Everett and he's such a specimen. Caroline is smitten with him very clearly, even when she's talking like to, to Colin's face, that's obvious. Um, And, and it's because Caroline doesn't get out that she becomes like a stalker to Colin. And some of the, she says she only points out one photo that was taken by her. There's a spoilers for the twist, the, the scene where everything changes. We're already so far down this road. Yeah. Where, um, where Mary sees this secret room in their house that's filled with photos of Colin. And she only says that explicitly that she took one of them. I feel like it was probably a pretty even mixture between Robert and Caroline. That's just my conception of it. Um, but yeah, the two of them are like taking stalker photos of of Colin in particular. So fucking creepy. Can you imagine being part of that? And the reason yeah, they do it is oh because God. yeah, it's so scary. It's because Caroline wants to look at Colin while she has sex with Robert. And that uh, man and she when she's explaining her sex life to mary she also says like um she says things to the effect of like the sex with robert keeps getting rougher and rougher and rougher still like they're full-on you know like it seems to be like a violent bdsm relationship yeah not 
not of her choosing, but she's just accepted this about herself. And, and now she's stuck because she has this back injury, which like, believable or not, it's the point of the movie. It, it You know, it's like metaphorical. Well, I, I mean, think. well, yeah, I mean, there's the literal fact that he gave her the black back injury during sex. There's the stress she gets from thinking about it. And yeah. then there's the fact she's so isolated. So all she can do is think about the pain she's on. She's on. Yeah. So it becomes this kind of self-perpetuating cycle. Then this all leads to Robert, the most shocking scene in the movie to me. Coming before, up and... before you get to that, before you okay. get to that, um, just one last thing about Caroline. Uh, and then we can talk about the very ending of the movie, which is another twist. Yeah. But actually it, what I'm, what I'm going to say is going to lead you to what you're going to say which is that Caroline is explaining like their sex keeps getting rougher and rougher and rougher. And she says like, um, we both know what the logical conclusion of that is. We both know, but we don't say it. What's the logical conclusion of a violent sexual relationship where one party is hurting the other? It's death. Death. Death is the logical extreme of that, which leads to the very ending of the movie. The very ending of the movie. Robert cutting Colin's throat. Yeah. Uh, so her her passion, her her one savior from the relationship is now destroyed. So it's their sexual relationship reaching a point of death. It's also Caroline's kind of dreams reaching a death. And then um and then potentially Robert being convicted to death. Yeah. Yeah, the the denouement of the movie where uh where Mary and Robert are both being questioned by police is a, is a pretty good one. Um, the dialogue during that scene, I uh, I have to admit, I mean, this is a like I said at the very beginning, not written by Schrader. It's written by Harold Pinter, um, adapted from a novel by Ian McEwan. So all credit goes to them. Like this is really really evocative dialogue during this like police questioning little denouement where mary's being questioned by italian police like um and and you know mcewen's one of the most honored authors in british in the modern british life oh man uh i believe it i didn't know that i believe it you know one of the classic you know 20th century playwrights so i've heard his name before yeah that's where that's from yeah um so a very literary movie which i'm sure schrader had a lot of fun with he's very literary minded but like when italian police are questioning mary um what they're the line that they're going down with her is so you tell me that you don't like robert and uh and colin didn't like robert and you kind of liked caroline but robert didn't like caroline why did you go to their house uh-huh. so many times? You know, I- implying like you're lying. You went there for sex and then it went wrong. That's the accusation from Italian police, which is not true. We know that. But Mary um, is finding it very, very difficult to explain that. Well, what is the explanation? Why did they go back? I was she never that. answers. What's that? She never answers. And that's kind of the question that you're left with. Why did they keep going back? What right. what the what the Italian cop says to her literally is um 
why did I think he says literally, why did you come to Venice? What did you come to Venice looking for? Uh huh. Which is the question of the movie. What they like earlier in the movie, you know, what the impression I got is what did they come to Venice for? It's the place where they had their like beginning of the relationship honeymoon period and they're back relationship. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're back 10 years later to answer the question of, should we stay together? That's why they came to Venice. We know that. But now Italian police think you came to Venice to be swingers. And then it went wrong. But I'm still stuck with the question of why did they go to the crazy couple's house that next day? Because they, they deliberately like take a taxi <laughs> over there, right? They, this, they uh... make a point of going where that when they could have left Venice or gone anywhere else in Venice, they choose to go there. And I, it's, it's the book club question, right? Look at these things as the book club question. Like the, this is what your book club would be debating about. Like hmm. I, I am stuck with like, I think it's so enigmatic in that way. Hmm. Just Europeans crippling like, themselves with politeness. Too. It's like, well, both these movies contain like this riddle at the heart of the movie. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 left ambiguous, which uh which was very evocative to me. It it gets me thinking and I'm still like I'm still filing through my thoughts about this one, even you know, talking to you about it. And then and Italian police are questioning Robert of a very different line of questioning, which is like you're so cunning. And you're so devious, but like, why did you make these obvious errors that allowed us to catch you? And Robert's response, my father, he kept a black mustache. <laughs> Fade to black. Perfect. That's yeah. Robert. Yeah. <laughs> so good. I really liked this one. I got to say, like, we've done this, I think, twice now. So it might be the third time we've done this. We talked about a movie, Light of Day, and it was one of them, where we said, this was so much better than I expected it to be. Mm. I think the only one you haven't liked is Cat People, right? I think That's I've liked true. all eight of the movies we've discussed. Yeah, you've liked all of them. Yeah. Yeah. I have. I think the one I like the, the least might be American Gigolo. Really? I thought it would be Light of Day. American Gigolo is just like not complex enough is my guess yeah i guess although i start to think about and i think no the point of it is that it's not complex and that's what makes it so beautiful that's what i was um back when we did that one that was uh oh no it wasn't together with hardcore but that movie and hardcore yeah yeah that but american gigolo and hardcore um to me is like you with Patty Hearst and the comfort of strangers where they're like neck and neck. And I'm trying to figure out which one I like more. It's like, still, it's going to be a photo finish whenever we get to the end of this. Nice. I think this is this, these two movies are also like that to me. Like Patty Hearst has this immediate punch to it, which I really like. Um, But the comfort of strangers, I've seen it twice now and I enjoyed the second watch a lot more than the first watch like it's it's and in talking with you about it it's like raising in my memory it's yeah it, it's it's a thinker it's 
this Real is literally why I do too. this. This is literally why I do this show. Because yeah. I come to these movies and I'm like, I'm not quite sure what I think about this. Because Comfort of Strangers is an uncomfortable movie. Yeah. <laughs> on there, right. Um, and I walked out of it feeling really kind of profoundly upset by what I had just seen. Mm. They're all such unlikable characters. They're all going through this really strange kind of triangle or quadrangle um, or square, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I'm not sure I, I felt like any comfort coming out of it. But then the more I think about it, the more it really kind of just sits with me in a way that is really satisfying. Mm. You know, this is a movie uh, that feels kind of, I mean, there's a lot of uh, shots of Schrader pointing the camera at the sun. Uh, it's a very like orange looking movie, Venice on the Adriatic Sea. It's nice and Mediterranean. Like yeah. what, what I'm trying to say is like in terms of climate, this movie looks warm, but in terms of mood, this movie is ice cold. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right, so we got two 90s Schrader movies next. Um, I've never seen Light Sleeper, but I'm looking forward to the whole Willem Dafoe of it all. Mm -hmm. And then I'll try and find a copy of Witch Hunt, which I know is for TV. Yeah, that's that's Schrader's HBO movie. I'll have to see if I can find that. Um, Witch Hunt is very interesting to me because I had never heard of it. And by sheer coincidence, like Witch Hunt is a sequel to an HBO movie called Cast a Deadly Spell. Oh. Uh, starring starring one of the guys from Tremors. And oh. the Tremors connection is why, by sheer coincidence, a buddy of mine showed me Cast a Deadly Spell for completely unrelated reasons, you know? So, like, I've seen Cast a Deadly Spell, which you probably didn't clock from me. <laughs> no, but I would, I now now I'm uh, looking forward to watching the sequel. I was unaware that it had a sequel, and I was unaware that Paul Schrader did this sequel to this, like, H.P. Lovecraft, like, cop movie. It's so weird. I have no idea what it's going to be about. I, I'm I'm so curious, and I have it up on Wikipedia, and I want to know the first words I find. Hmm. Interrupts the meeting between her and one of the mansion's sex workers. And I'm like, oh, this might sound like a Schrader movie after all. Aha, uh -huh. yeah, there you go. Uh, well, <laughs> Schrader's gonna um Schrader's gonna direct a sequel to someone else's movie again, way down the line. I'm very looking forward to Exorcist Part Four. All right. <laughs> yeah, that's wild, right? Yes. Um, and as for Light Sleeper, I think Light Sleeper, with the possible exception of Affliction, might be the most acclaimed, most beloved Schrader movie that I have yet to see. But that's what we're doing next. So finally, I'm going to get that one under my belt. Oh, we get D Dana Delaney back. It's kind of fun seeing her show up for a minute in Patty Hearst, one of my mm. favorite late 80s, early 90s actresses. Hmm. Yeah, isn't Light Sleeper in New York City? That's going to be fun. I don't know anything about it, honestly. I've never seen it either. I want to say it's in New that York. It's set in New York City during a sanitation strike, it says. Okay, yeah, so it's going to look real dirty. <laughs> yes. That's such that's a that's such a Paul Schrader milieu. Like the sanitation workers are on strike. <laughs> There's like this ambient sense of like uh 
like discomfort across the whole city. That's such a Schrader thing. That was the thing in The Comfort of Strangers. That was exactly the thing. Like you were observing Venice was so empty, so weirdly empty for such a touristy city. Is the city itself sick or is it just like a manifestation of these people? Oh, yeah. Oh, we got such a great tie-up episode to do when we get to that. Yeah. How empty is the world of the canyons? We'll see. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Blaze, this was awesome. I'm like, legitimately, like, you helped me get to so many more points I would have ever gotten into. Yeah, I'm I'm getting better at this. I also wasn't, I was expecting this to be a short one, but it appears to be a long one. I wasn't expecting that. Oh, yeah, we're at 90 minutes or so. Well, <laughs> thanks to everyone who stuck out, stuck this out, because I think it's worth it. Yeah, it's, we're having fun. 